0: am able in a short amount of time, um, and it was interesting, you know, I was, before I came to the island, and while I've been here, I've been sort of contacting different people and asking, you know, where where can I get the best Aloha shirt, and uh, was having uh, one person told me by text message, uh, just go to Macy's, just get one at Macy's, and I was really just disappointed with that. Uh, I, I said earlier that we sort of live in an age of authenticity, right, where everything needs to be, like, original, handmade, handcrafted. Um, it needs to be the real deal. And, uh, you know, I wanted an Aloha shirt that was, like, hand-woven on the, the beaches of Kailua, uh, buttons made of, like, coconut shells, you know, by the natives, right? Uh, So Macy's was sort of like, "Ah, gosh, I can't go to Macy's. Um, We're in the book of Acts, and Acts gives us really a picture of what authentic, real Christianity is all about, uh, what the real deal looks like. And uh, we've been going through it the last couple weeks. If you're a guest or visiting, I'm just here for a few weeks, uh, filling in for uh, Pastor Todd, who's away on vacation with his family um, so Acts is really, a lot of it is about original, authentic Christianity. Uh, and last week, we were, we were in the midst of a story, really from Acts 3 all the way to Acts 4, um, is, is one story, one narrative in the midst of a larger narrative in Acts, in which two of the apostles, two of the earliest Christians, Peter and John, had gotten in trouble with some of the religious leaders in Jerusalem for their ministry of word and deed, for both healing a crippled man and then also proclaiming a radically exclusive message that salvation and rescue and fulfillment and hope can only be found in Jesus. Radically exclusive, and yet it made them, that message, that radically exclusive message made them Incredibly hospitable, incredibly open, and inclusive of people not like them. Um, So, both this week and next week, I'll give you a little preview. We're going to be looking kind of at what the gospel, what kinds of people does the gospel create? What kind of church does the gospel create? When you preach the resurrection from the dead in Jesus, what kind of people does it create? And this morning, I want to focus a little bit more particularly on the question of how does the gospel uh speak to us and give us valuable resources, deep resources in moments of persecution, in moments of suffering, in moments of tragedy, uh, in moments of despair and i was I was sort of wrestling last night with the sermon and thinking, man I you know." I hope I hope that this sort of hits people where they're at, Uh, and then of course you know you turn on the news this morning and you just see that our whole world is just full of brokenness and despair and tragedy. Um, So that I hope that my prayer this morning is just that the gospel hits you right where we all are in the midst of a lot of brokenness. Um, So I I think that the gospel speaks to us in in three ways. It gives us at least three uh, truths. Um, resources to draw on uh, in moments of tragedy and suffering and unspeakable despair. And those three are this. This is what I want to focus on this morning. Uh, First is that the gospel gives us a community to identify with suffering. It's a community that identifies with suffering. Uh, The gospel gives us revelation that gives meaning to our suffering, and then the gospel also provides up it provides a deep kind of prayer life a, a deep prayer life that gives us strength in the midst of suffering so a community to identify with suffering revelation to give us meaning in suffering and then prayer to give us strength in the midst of suffering so first a community to identify with suffering um, we you've heard it already this morning from various in various different ways, but the church is created to be a fellowship or a community of cross bearing burden bearing friends um in so if you if you're familiar with the story acts three acts four uh, Peter and John have come under immense suffering and persecution at the hands of the religious leaders and what does what does verse 23 say? That on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. Uh, our ESV says their friends. Uh, uh, NIV says their own, their own people. Uh, and that's important. You know, in a culture of isolation, of loneliness, of despair and suffering, friends are vital. You need people to do life with. Um, but the church is more, uh, I want to ex- maybe hopefully expand your vision about what the church is. It's potlucks and coffee are phenomenal. Uh, we're going to have a fellowship meal after church today that I hope you all come to. Um, those are phenomenal things, but the church is far greater, far deeper than that. Um, and Acts gives us a vision. It just, it gives us a little clue. And it, the, some of the clues are here in Acts 4. Uh, but Acts, what Acts is really doing as a whole is showing us that, is showing us a theology of how Jesus and the church are now the true temple, where God's presence is manifest, where God meets with his people. Um, so f- go with me here for just, a, for just a moment. Acts 3, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up, you can flip to this. But Acts 3, verse 1, where are Peter and John? When they healed a crippled man. On one, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple. That's important. That's super important. Uh, they're in the temple, healing a crippled man, showing uh, the presence of God in power and majesty and glory. Then, if you flip over a couple of chapters to um, Acts, uh, Acts chapter 6, Stephen, who's an early Christian, um, an early follower of Jesus, He is seized by the religious leaders when he begins to speak against the temple, verse 13 of chapter six. For we have heard him say, this is the religious leaders, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and change the customs Moses handed to us. So in Acts three, Peter and John are at the temple. In Acts six through seven and eight, one of the, the first martyr, the first person, the first Christian killed for their faith is killed because they're speaking against the temple. That's fascinating. What I believe Luke is doing in this passage is showing us that God's presence is no longer with the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed, but is ultimately and, and ultimately manifest and fully manifest in the people of God in the Christian community. Um, and then where I'm getting that in Acts 4 is, you see right, drop down to the very end of the passage, um, notice this is an unusual kind of prayer meeting that the church has. They come together, they pray, and then the pl- literally the place that they are in is shaken. There's an earthquake, and they're all filled with the Spirit. Luke is doing something marvelous here. He's drawing on Old Testament language um, from... The, book of Mo- the books of Moses and uh, some of the historical books in which when God's presence is manifest, think about stories of Mount Sinai. When God came down on Mount Sinai, the mountain shook, it trembled. Uh, and his, as his spirit came and dwelled on that mountain, uh, that place shook and trembled. Um, in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has a marvelous vision of the Lord and is filled with the spirit, So that he can uh, be commissioned and sent out to prophesy, Uh, Isaiah records for us that the temple shakes. So what Luke is indicating here is that God is now manifest with the Christian community, with his church. Um, What he's doing is echoing. He's echoing what happened in the Old Testament when God came down and was present with his people. And notice that the temple, the temple never was, in the Old Testament, was a place of escape. It was never a place where all the holy people came and huddled together. It was rather a foretaste of something new that God was doing in the world. It was to be a sign that this is what I'm going to do when I begin to renew and restore all things. Um, so the church was called to be, A foretaste of God's new world, his new creation. And so, what the church is experiencing is when God's future, the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, meets their present, the present evil age, it's like the clash of tectonic plates. There will be earth-shattering results, right? Earth-shaking results. That's what Luke is trying to indicate. Um, What does that new world look like? What does that new creation look like? Well, Acts, I think, gives us a hint in this passage, and this is a theme that comes up over and over again in Acts, is that God's people will now, because they're imaging and reflecting God's beauty, they will begin to identify with people who are suffering. Uh, Notice what's happening. The church is marginalized, persecuted. They're under immense suffering and tribulation, and where does God's presence meet them? Where does the earthquake happen? Right in a marginalized, excluded, suffering group of sinners. Uh, that's where God's presence meets them. God is saying that he will identify with them, with people who are suffering. See, Peter and John came to their friends. They came to their own and were embraced Uh, They had fellow believers who were willing to embrace them, willing to own their suffering with them. Remember what it said of Jesus in the Gospels that he came to his own and they disowned him. Uh, Christianity was radically shaped and formed by a God who came to identify with suffering people. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that the church, you and I, need to be the kinds of people who identify and reach out and move towards people who are broken, people who are hurting, people who are suffering, people who are going through unspeakable tragedy. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. That's who Jesus is. Uh, And Jesus' presence is with us in the church. Uh, so the community is to be a, a, a group of people that identifies with suffering. It's to be a resource for people who are hurting. But secondly, uh, the gospel, I think, and here in Acts 4, we see that God has given us revelation. He's given us a book that gives meaning to our suffering. So how does the Christian story make sense of suffering? Well, here I've been reading this past week on... Um, on a lot about race and how the gospel affects our view of race and um, how God has created the world incredibly diverse. Um, and I've been reading a lot of Martin Luther King. And uh, there's a story of Martin Luther King, January 27, 1956, in which uh, King found, he, it was uncovered, but uh, he found 12 unexploded sticks of dynamite on his front porch. Um, he, as many of you know, was assassinated, had numerous assassination attempts on his life. Uh, and this is what he said about that event. He says, We do not know what we truly believe or what our theology is worth until our highest hopes are turned into shambles of despair or we are victims of some tragic injustice and some terrible exploitation. And the author that I was reading, that's quoting Martin Luther King, said, That what sustained Martin Luther King was a sense of God's love, which gave him the interior resources to bear the burdens and tribulations of life, come what may. What sustained Martin Luther King was the sense of God's love, which gave him the interior resources to bear the burdens and tribulations of life, come what may see what the author is saying, see what Martin Luther King is saying, that the gospel gives us a record. It gives us a story. It gives us a book that makes sense, gives meaning to our suffering, gives us meaning in tragedy. Um, And that might come to a shock to some people, maybe you even this morning, that tend to, um, if you're like me, tend to read the Bible as as a list of rules. Or, or as the Jesus Storybook Bible, one of my favorite translations, says, it's, it's not a book of rules, primarily a book of rules to follow or a book of heroes to imitate. It's all one story. It's all one story about a king who came to bear our suffering and identify with us in suffering and give meaning to our tragedies and our sufferings. Where am I getting that from? Well, look at the way that these early Christians are reading their Bibles. It was radically new—the uh, way that they're understanding Psalms, like Psalm, like the Psalm here, Psalm two—was was something totally new. Uh, it was something that they had been taught for forty days by Jesus on how to do, and here they are demonstrating the deep resources of the story that God has given us in the Bible. Uh, so notice what what's going on in. Uh, they, they come back, um, they begin to pray together, and the words that just spontaneously come out of their mouths are out of the Old Testament book of Psalms, in which they're quoting King David, uh, who writes about the fact that God would anoint a king, would uh, cause a servant to come forward, who would be rejected by the rulers, by the kings, by the officials, uh, by the Gentiles and by the peoples, and notice they they correspond. What happened in Psalm two exactly with the details of Jesus's ministry? That Jesus was the anointed servant who was rejected by Pontius Pilate, rejected by Herod, uh, was um, was was marginalized and excluded by the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Uh, and he was that suffering servant king. And that means really three things. I think th- it's it's brilliant what Luke is doing by recording this prayer for us because it means that as you and I read our Bibles, God has given us the key to understanding exactly who Jesus is and exactly how to find meaning in tragedy. And these are these are three things. One is, look at the way that Jesus identify or or, or uh, David and these early Christians identifies Jesus as the servant. Uh, you know, if you know your Old Testament, you know that Jesus was often called um, the servant. He was prophesied as the coming servant. Um, here in in uh, Psalm two, David is called the servant of the Lord. He's called the servant. Uh, as he's prophesying, as he's giving words to what will happen to Jesus, Jesus is identified with David as a servant, one who speaks to us in our suffering. Isn't that beautiful that God actually addresses you in your suffering? He speaks to you in your tragedies. Uh, But it's not just that he speaks to you. He's also, when, when the Bible calls Jesus the servant, Think about uh, passages like Isaiah 53 where Jesus is called the suffering servant. That he comes to absorb our suffering, embrace us in our suffering, identify us uh, with us in our suffering. Jesus, as the great priest, comes to bear suffering with us. Uh, But notice also who Jesus is. He's the anointed king. He's the servant who's also the anointed king. He's the one who... Marvelous, marvelously, as the apostles here um, include in their words, that Jesus is now the one who's overruling, who's working through our suffering. Right? What does what what uh, Luke record for us? That the apostles said that it was, it was by God's predestinating plan and foreknowledge. God had orchestrated all the events of Jesus' life. All the suffering, all the hardship, all the tragedy, and he was able to out of that bring something incredibly beautiful and incredibly good. Think about the the story of Joseph. He was rejected by his brothers, imprisoned, um, uh, brought to the lowest place that you could possibly be brought, and yet God said that he, what what men used for evil, God meant for good. He. Twisted it for good. He turned it to good. The suffering wasn't good, but God was able to, out of that tragedy and out of that suffering, bring something incredibly beautiful and wonderful. Um, So what's the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is that your story doesn't end with suffering. Um, One one writer that I love to read uh, says in one of his books that The secular culture that we live in does not prepare people at all for suffering. Uh, If God doesn't exist, if we live in a godless universe and a godless world, then there's no possible way you can prepare for suffering. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, nature does not in the long run favor life. If nature is all that exists, in other words, if there is no God and no life of some quite different sort somewhere outside of nature, then all stories will end in the same way. There'll be be a a brief flicker and then they're gone. Uh, If we live in a godless universe, a godless world, then all stories end the same way in tragedy. But if the gospel story is true, if Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for sinners is true, then all stories, then your story can can end in hope, can end in everlasting life, can end in great beauty. Jesus' story can be your story. I think it's important to point out here that, um, right, the scripture, the Bible God's revelation doesn't give us an answer to why. It doesn't answer all our questions about suffering. Uh, But in the midst of suffering, it shows us that in the darkest hours of human history, while Jesus was hanging naked, bleeding on a cross, in the darkest point of human history, God was at work when God was shaking both the heavens and the earth, when Jesus was hung on that cross, uh, you can be sure that ultimately God can say in suffering, because he said it in the midst of the worst kind of suffering, that he loves you, that he's present with you, that he's for you in Jesus Christ. So, so the gospel also gives us revelation. It gives us it gives us a book. It gives us a story that can make sense and give meaning to our suffering. Uh, but lastly, it it gives us prayer to strengthen us in the midst of suffering. Uh, and before I talk about what I think the kinds of prayer that's reflected in the early church here, I want to talk about really what prayer is not. What Christian prayer is not. There's a few things and you get this by the way that these early Christians prayed, Um, there are some things that Christian prayer certainly is not. First, it's not not pantheistic. Uh, A lot of prayer today or meditation is based on the idea that prayer and meditation is really designed for you to get in touch with your inner self. That's not what the early Christians are doing here. They're not getting in touch with their inner self. They're appealing to the king of the world. Uh, Christian prayer is also not deist. It's not putting a message in a bottle and throwing it out to sea and hoping that somewhere some divine being or entity uh, listens to you or answers your prayer. Um, that's not what Christian prayer is. It's not putting a message in a bottle and and sending it out hoping that somebody hears you. Uh, and it's also not the kinds of prayer that you see in in sort of pagan religion, where, um, where the, 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 the person who's praying or meditating is trying to placate or bribe or cajole or offer something to a god so that that god will respond favorably. That's not what's going on here in Acts 4. What's going on in Acts 4 is these early Christians are connecting God's strength to their weakness, they're drawing on the provisions of God, the infinite provisions of God in their helplessness, in their hopelessness. They are applying God's promises in God's word to their situation and their circumstance. Notice they're also not, they're not self-absorbed at all. Uh, this prayer is all about God. For five verses, they talk to God. And then in the very last two verses, they ask for God to do something for them and it's really not even for them it's ultimately for God's kingdom it's for the furtherance of God's glory and the reputation of Jesus there's five verses about God and two verses about them I think what that tells us about Christian prayer is that not that God needs to hear about himself they weren't quoting God's word back to him because God had forgotten Uh, they were quoting God's word back to him because they needed to be changed in the midst of their suffering. They needed to know who God was. And I think what that tells me about Christian prayer is that when your circumstances don't make any sense, when the actions of God don't make any sense, when God's sovereign and providential and predestinating power don't make any sense in your life, then you need to, in prayer, run into the arms of his character, of his attributes, of who he has revealed himself to be in his word. So what's the takeaway? Um, The takeaway is several things, at least several things. One is that oftentimes in suffering and tragedy, there's not much else to do but to pray. Uh, notice what these disciples don't do. They don't rally. Uh, they don't stage a public demonstration. They don't write to their congressmen uh, complaining about the injustice that's done. They go to the only one in the universe who can hear and listen and act on their requests. They go to God. Sometimes that's all you can do in the midst of suffering. Um but also, notice what, notice what characterizes this Christian community. They're the kinds of people that know who God is in a deep and profound way. A lot of times I think we can, uh, we can sort of brush aside doctrine, uh, brush aside knowing who God is, brush aside studying his word. But notice what the Spirit is doing in this passage. The Holy Spirit is using the bible he's using teaching he's using doctrine he's using the attributes of god he's using theology and he's inflaming it he's bringing it to bear on the circumstances of these men and women Uh, that's what the spirit does he works with doctrine he uses the gospel uh, to ignite our hearts to inflame our hearts for witness for evangelism for service um for comfort in times of suffering and despair. So what what as I was thinking about this passage this week and meditating on it, I I think one of the things that oftentimes prevents, at least me, from going to God with this kind of prayer, with the kind of prayer that raises and just brings everything that uh, everything that I am, everything that um, I know that I need before the Lord is that oftentimes I think what happens is I read passages like this and expect that God will respond in an earthquake like He did in Acts four. We expect often that God should respond to us in the way that we, in the way that we would like, and oftentimes our prayers, at least for me, feel like they're met with emptiness or silence. Um, does that does that ever happen to you where you f- you you have this great anticipation this great expectation that God would meet you in this sort of earth shaking uh experience like these early disciples and instead you're met with emptiness uh, what do you do in moments like that? Well, a couple of things notice how completely different these disciples their their complete experience has changed in luke 22 remember in Jesus' greatest hour of need in Jesus' darkest hour he invited he welcomed his disciples to pray and remember where he found them asleep and here they are in one of their greatest hours of need. Literally, church history is standing on the edge of a knife. It's their greatest hour of need. And they're praying. What's, something dramatically has changed from Luke 22 to Acts 4. Something profound has happened. And it's this. I think, I think at least three things has happened that has radically and profoundly changed these disciples and led them into a, um, into a deep, profound kind of prayer. The first is this, that in Jesus' greatest and darkest hour, he was praying not only for himself, but for these disciples, for people like you and me. That's written all over the end of the New Testament. John's high priestly prayer. Jesus prays for people like you and me. In his darkest and greatest hour, Jesus was praying for you. So you can know with confidence, with assurance, that in your greatest hour, in your darkest hour, Jesus is listening to you. Jesus is acting, he's responding. In Jesus' greatest and darkest hour, he was praying for you so that you can know that in your darkest hour that Jesus is listening to you. Um, Second, on the cross, Jesus was praying and his prayer was met with a profound, ultimate, eternal kind of emptiness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' prayer was met with a kind of emptiness you will never experience because Jesus was on the cross embracing all our suffering, all our sin, all our shame, all our guilt so that you can know, you can be confident, you can be assured that God always listens to your prayer. That even if you experience a kind of emptiness, it's not because God is silent, because on the cross, Jesus experienced the most profound kind of emptiness, the most profound silence, so that you can know, you can be confident of God's love for you, of His answer to you in Christ Jesus. He loves you, even if it seems like the answer is empty. And then third, how can you be moved to this kind of prayer? Well, it also comes, I think, from looking at what the Gospel of Matthew records for us as the two great earthquakes. Um, At the end of Matthew, in Matthew 27, at the moment of Jesus' death, there was, Matthew records, an earthquake. It shook the rocks, it broke open tombs, uh, dead people were raised to life. And then in Matthew 28, at the moment of Jesus' resurrection, there was a magnificent earthquake, two earthquakes, at the moment of Jesus' death and at his resurrection. What does that say to you and me? It says that if we get what the psalmist and the poet says in Psalm 55, that cast your burden on the Lord, he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be shaken. Friends, if you, if you see the gospel in the reality that on the cross, Jesus was shaken for you. In God's wrath, he underwent the worst kind of quaking and shaking so that you will never have to. And at his resurrection, a power was unleashed that is even now shaking the heavens and the earth. A power that is for you. If you're in Jesus Christ, then you will know that you will never be shaken. You can have a kind of boldness and confidence, a kind of confidence in the worst kind of tragedy, the worst kind of suffering, the worst kind of weakness and affliction. You'll know that on the cross, Jesus bore for you God's wrath that shook him to his core. And now a resurrection power has been released in our life, in this world that if you're resting in, if you're confident in, if you're believing in, if you're hoping in, you will never be shaken to your core. When you know that Jesus was shaken for you on the cross, when you know that resurrection power is now shaking all things for you, then friends, you will never be shaken and that will lead you to a kind of deep communion and profound kind of prayer with a God who hears, with a God who listens and who is acting to restore you, to restore this broken world, and to eventually wipe away all tears, wipe away all tragedy, uh, make everything sad come untrue. The gospel gives us, friends, great confidence, great boldness, uh, that's, what, that's what Luke records here, that the, the disciples, when they understood the gospel power, the power that they had in Jesus Christ, they went out boldly and confidently, knowing that nothing could stop them, that they were, they were immortal until God's work for them was done. If you believe that Jesus was shaken on the cross for you, if you believe that resurrection power unleashed at Jesus' resurrection— is for you, then you will never be shaken. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them,